You're listening to Sacred and Profane Love, a podcast in which philosophers, theologians, and literary critics discuss how literature and poetry can help us think more deeply about love, happiness, and meaning in human life. I am your host, Jennifer Frey. I am an assistant professor of philosophy at the University of South Carolina. You can follow me on social media. I'm on Twitter at Jen Frey, and I'm on Instagram at Professor S. Frey. You can also follow the podcast on Twitter at Pod. In episode 22, titled Love and Longing in the Dystopia, I speak with Professor David McPherson of Creighton University about Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Welcome to episode 22 of Sacred and Profane Love. This evening, I am delighted to be speaking with my old friend, David McPherson, who is now Associate Professor of Philosophy at Creighton University in Omaha, Nebraska. Welcome back to the podcast, David. Thanks, Jennifer. Thanks for having me back. So I wanted, before we start talking about Brave New World, which obviously we're going to get to, I wanted you to tell us about your new book. You have a new book out called Virtue and Meaning, a Neo-Aristotelian Perspective. So why don't you tell us about that? Yeah, uh, of course, this is an area of interest to both you and I. So it's sort of my take on um, contemporary virtue ethics, trying to put forward my own approach. I think like you, I think we've both been drawn to the the virtue ethics tradition, have, uh, you know, Anscombe's Modern Moral Philosophy was a, a very influential essay. Uh, for both of us, I think, in our in our work. And, uh, and um, so, I, I, you know, I've been attracted to, you know, of course, others like McIntyre's After Virtue uh, early on in my philosophical education. That was a very formative book. And I was very drawn to the virtue ethics tradition going back to Aristotle and, of course, Aquinas and so forth. And the, the first chapter, I try to show how our human form of life is shaped by the strong evaluative form of meaning. And I combat this, uh, what I call a disenchanting move that you see uh, even even in Anscombe's uh, modern moral philosophy, although I don't think she herself ultimately follows it, where she says we need to do away with this special sense of ought. Um, and I think I think this whole realm of strong evaluative meaning is a sort of special realm of ought that's not, it's not, um, it, it's something, it sort of makes demands upon us in a certain way that are set apart from other sort of concerns or desires we may happen to have. And so then I get into developing a count of happiness understood in terms of a meaningful life. Uh, I get into um, issues of other regarding concern where um, uh, I think a lot of accounts have been overly instrumentalized by neurocytelians uh, trying to bring in accounts of uh, human dignity or even the sanctity of human life. Uh, I think this is needed to ground uh, moral absolutes, which was a concern uh, for Anscombe. Um, and then I sort of get into larger questions of our cosmic outlooks and the the meaning of life, as as you might call it. Um, and ultimately, you know, I, I sort of defend a place for spirituality in the good life and seek to uh, particularly argue uh, for the role of contemplation uh, in neuroscientific ethics today. Uh, I think a lot of neuroscientists have sort of poo-pooed. Uh, contemplation have focused more on on practical reason. I mean, how can you call yourself an Aristotelian of any kind unless you uh, recognize the supreme value and dignity of contemplation? Exactly, exactly. 
I guess I just want to invite you to say why you think Brave New World is a great book and why we should, why should we want to read Brave New World? Like what's interesting about it? Yeah, that's, um, I'm also teaching biomedical ethics right now. Um, and of course you get into topics of genetic engineering. So uh, Brave New World often comes up in the context of discussions of genetic engineering because uh, children, are, I mean, so, uh, this genetic engineering in the novel, everyone is, is born through artificial wounds. There's cloning that happens, especially with the lower, the lower caste. Um, and so, you know, it gets in some interesting issues in, um, with regard to genetic engineering. Uh, but it's all, you also hear Brave New World come up, uh, in, in discussions of utilitarianism. So it's kind of interesting. I think, uh, you know, if you think about Nietzsche, um, in many respects, I think Brave New World is, is a world of the last man rather than the overman. So a lot of I think a lot of people, when they think about uh, genetic engineering, they think more about Nietzsche's ideal transhumanist ideal of the ubermensch or the, the overman, this sort of superhuman ideal that we're striving for. Uh, but in many respects, I think uh, what Huxley is, is concerned to sort of depict is this sort of world of, of, of total hedonism. Um, this is where you know where it comes up uh, with utilitarianism. And this is really, I think, the wor the world of of the last man, or sort of this this end of civilization kind of uh, idea that that Nietzsche discusses in, in Thus Spoke Zarathustra, where you know he says uh, when he talks about the last man after the overman, he says, "Behold, I show you the last man. What is love? What is creation? What is longing? What is a star?" Thus asks the last man, and he blinks. The earth has become small. And on it hops the last man who makes everything small. One still one's one still loves one's one one still loves one's neighbors and rubs against him for one needs warmth. Everybody wants the same. Everyone is the same. One has one's little pleasures for the day and one's little pleasures for the night. But one uh, but one has regard for health. We have invented happiness, says the last man, and and uh, they blink. Uh, so it's in many ways like the, the overman is is an ideal of meaning, right? Uh, and Nietzsche, one of one of the lines I always like from Nietzsche is he says, "Man does not desire happiness; only the Englishman does." Uh, and so I think yeah, that's you know, a pretty good one. You know, so there's this question of of uh, you know for for Nietzsche, he's seeking after meaning, and you know, the overman is sort of his his ideal of like how to give meaning to the earth, how to, how to redeem, how to redeem life on earth. Um, and I think you see that kind of Nietzschean ideal in, in some discussions of genetic engineering. Um, but here it's sort of, you got genetic engineering, but it's like the last man, we're just sort of mm -hmm. making everyone, everyone happy in a sort of hedonistic sense. Uh, but I, I do think, you know, it raises questions about, you know, is this really happiness? Is this, is this how we, sh how we should understand happiness? Um, and I, I think one of the questions it really raises is, is the brave new world a recognizably human world? Um, is it one that we could see ourselves inhabiting uh, in, in any real sense? Um, I mean, in certain sense, you can see certain hedonistic strains in the culture, but could this ever be a world that human beings would be satisfied inhabiting? Maybe some people, um, but uh, so that I think that's something, you know, we can we can come to discuss, but uh, in many sense, it's, it seems like not like a transhumanist ideal, but like a, a subhuman world uh, or like an infantile world. I mean, often, you know, right. there's this discussion, uh, the character John refers to people living in this kind of infantile way. And so uh, it's not it's not a fully I think the argument that Huxley's wanted to sort of implicitly put forward is this is 
not not a truly human world. Um, there's a sense well, of it's like, not. Yeah, it's not. It's not just John who says that. I mean, John does say that, but so does I believe it's Helmholtz at one point, but also yeah. this um, interesting figure in Mustafa Mond. So these these alpha dudes when they start to have like real human emotion like they have a duty they're under a duty or a rational imperative to like yeah force themselves to return to a more infantile state so but before we get into discussing that i think it's important to explain to folks who haven't read brave new world <laughs> what the setup is so and and here I just kind of want to talk about in a really general way, like the structural basics. So like how are people born in the brave new world? Um, how do people sort of have sex and recreate in the brave new world? Yeah. And how do they die? Because it's yeah. all very different. Yeah. Yeah. So it uh, it's a futuristic novel that's set in London. Uh, in the year of our for the year of our four uh, 1632 I believe which in our normal calendar would be about over 500 years into the future so mm -hmm. rather than saying the year of our Lord they now say the year of our Ford of course referring to uh, Henry Ford the, uh, of Ford manufacturing fame um, so I guess Huxley uh, came to America and was like just very like struck by like the sort of um, culture of America, the sort of consumer culture, the sort of uh, maybe the utilitarian aspects, the sort of machine and the industrial production, the sort of machine mindset that you see and sort of the, the assembly line with, with Ford cars and trucks. And so anyways, it, they, uh, everything's about, you know, uh, Oh Ford rather than say, Oh Lord, they say, Oh Ford. And so uh, it's a sort of futuristic uh, novel in London uh, it sort of opens uh, at the uh, central London hatchery and conditioning center where uh, people are, are hatched more or less out of artificial wombs. Uh, and they're also conditioned through sleep training and other sort of um, social conditioning mechanisms. There's one point where the, the lower caste babies are put on the floor with books and flowers and then they're like zapped really hard. It's like a kind of disturbing, sad part of the book when these poor little kids are being zapped so to, to make them not like books and, and flowers. Well, and, they're know. being electrocuted. Yeah, elect yeah, exactly. That was zapped. Yeah. Yeah, so, they're, they're <laughs> being electrocuted. Yeah. So, and they're they're crying just, just and to be clear. they're not like being squirted with a water gun. No, or, no, that's what I meant. I was I was being uh, I was being uh, euphemistic about it. But um, yeah, yeah. So one of the one of the I mean the, the protagonist, like I guess you would say, is Bernard Marx, who is a sleep learning specialist. He's a psychologist, uh, partly because you know he's he's sort of engaged in this conditioning activity. He's disgruntled with it to some degree. It also comes out of an inferiority complex that he has uh, resulting from him, him being shorter than most alpha males. Uh, well, yeah, so we have to explain what an alpha male is. So this is part of the birth process. So this, yeah. is, a, this is a genetically predetermined hierarchical society. So can you explain that? Yeah, so there's all these different levels of uh, human beings, you might say, uh, I mean, they're they're in a caste system and so they are uh they are reproduced in in different ways um 
their decanting process is different. Uh, uh, I'm not sure if I understand all of the, the futuristic science that Huxley is deploying here, but the basic idea is that that people are engineered to be at different levels. The alphas are the top level. Uh, they're the, the smartest or the most good looking. They're usually of like, you know, the, the males at least are of, of a larger size. And then they're have, tall, they're athletic, they're good yeah. looking, they're smart, they're alpha males. Yeah. And they're apparently, yeah. apparently Bernard had some issue, you know, with it, maybe there being too much alcohol in his blood surrogate before uh, he was decanted. Uh, so he's a little smaller in this, than other alpha males. So, you know, when he's with, you know, the, the lower caste, he's, he's got to assert his, his dignity more. He can't just assume it as much. Um, so I think that difference, it, it, that difference in sort of physiology that, you know, that he has with other alphas, I think gives him some sense of, you, you might say, alienation from his, his particular class or cast. Um, so I think, you know, ultimately that leads to him, you know, being subject to, to exile because he's sort of questioning, questioning his system. But um, so, yeah, so you have this, again, futuristic world in which is genetic engineering. Not everyone's sort of engineered to be sort of top level, but there's this caste system because basically if everyone's, if everyone's at, at sort of the alpha level, no one's going to be doing the hard work, right? Uh, but people got to be sort of conditioned to, to accept their place in society. There's an element of Plato's Republic, you know, where you tell people that they're, you know, um, you know, this noble lie about their, their place in society. Uh, and so it yeah, makes... but it's more, sorry to interrupt, but it's more than conditioning. So some people are created to be tall and smart and athletic, and some people are created to be like short and stupid yeah. and um, have like weird beady eyes. Some, and, and the lower classes are cloned. That's right. So yeah. if we're talking about, say, Epsilons, which is like pretty low down, yeah. um, they are like, so they have this Bakanovsky process. I'm sure I'm not quite saying that right, but they can create between 72 to 96 identical clones. And yeah. that's what they do. And so you have classes of people that are cloned. So they are in no way individuals. Yeah. Um, except in some like metaphysical sense, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, they have their own matter. They're not only cloned, but they are cloned to have the characteristics that would be valuable to carry out their specific function in the society, which is not to lead, but to like take out the trash. Um, so there's a genetic base. Um, so you're so they there are these social predestination rooms where you are, it's like determined like where you're gonna go and then they create you like in a certain way. Um, what sort of way? Well, it's completely determined by your function in society. And that happens way before you are socially conditioned in any way. You are genetically yeah, predestined. Right. One of the worries I think or, you know, the concerns going in the background is is this a sort of dehumanized mm -hmm. world. And I think cloning often leads to that concern is that you have just all these people who are identical. Um, and so it, they're, they're sort of treated as just useful, right? They're, they're useful for society. There's not really a sense of a uh, strong sense that these epsilons have, have any great dignity or worth, although as human beings, I think we, we would want to say that they do. Um, but they're not individuals in an important sense, right? Um, 
and of course the whole society is meant to have this kind of unity this uh the community identity and and uh stability i think is the the motto of of uh the society right um right where the greatest of these is stability yeah exactly right. yeah. uh so yeah it um so it's it's this yeah sort of caste system uh and people are sort of again genetically engineered to be at certain levels but then they're socially conditioned to be happy with their their where they're at in the in the society right um so i mean other aspects of dehumanization you know that you know one might worry about is sort of uh their sexual lives that we'll, we'll get uh more into i'm sure but um i mean oftentimes i mean even at a kind of in a sort of sexist way we're like uh women are, are regarded as meat, right? It seems to be a world fit for certain certain kinds of men. Uh, um, but I mean, often there's this, often a reference to, to women as, as being like meat. Um, and of course, one of the one of the other really important characters that we'll be talking about is uh, Lenina Crown, uh, who's very beautiful. She's a technician at the Hatchery and Conditioning Center. Um, she is somewhat uh somewhat out of keeping with the conventions because she's been uh she's been going steady with uh henry foster for a while for four months and that's sort of looked down upon so this is this is a world of uh of casual sexual relations it's a world without families um calling someone a mother or father is seen as as an obscenity uh so um so everyone, I mean, one of, one of the slogans is that everyone belongs to everyone, right? Um, you know, um, in some sense, this, you know, there's certain kinds of Marxist kind of ideals of a communist society where you have this sort of like commune where everyone's belonging to everyone. So you might say there's a, a family sense in the kind of the wider society, but there's not a family in anything like uh, what we would typically regard as, uh, you know, a family with uh, a mother and father and, and children that result from a marriage. So there's no marriage. Death is not something that's attended to, I should say, with with any significance. Basically, once you get to a certain age where you lose your youthfulness, you're sort of put down, right? They, they give you enough soma. You're euthanized. You're euthanized. Yeah, all, exactly. All death is euthanasia. Yeah. Exactly. So yeah, there's death, but there's no significance of death or it's sort of, it's not, it's not a part of the world. They're sort of conditioned not to regard it as having any significance. So there's, there's death conditioning that happens. Um, so this is why in some ways well, it's not. I'm sorry, I might, I might slightly disagree with you there. I don't know. It depends on what you mean by significance. So if you think about the Park Lane Hospital for the dying, that's where you go when you're going to be euthanized. That's actually part of conditioning. So kids are conditioned to like what they're going to need to perform their function in society and dislike what is going to prevent them from functioning from functioning well. They're conditioned to have a certain kind of class consciousness. Yeah. Right. So you're conditioned as an alpha to like other alphas and look down on everyone else. And you're conditioned as an epsilon to like look up and like stay in your place. But then there, there's also like you're conditioned from a very early age to be sexually promiscuous. Yeah. And there are like all of these funny scenes where it's just like, you know, elementary school kids and, and the teachers are like trying to get them to be horny. And it's like, what? And they're kids, <laughs> like they don't, yeah. they don't care. But then there's also death conditioning. So these children are taken 
to these hospitals for the dying. And when somebody dies, there's like, you know, the kids are brought in like, yay. And you're meant to like, see it as like, oh, it's great. And they give them like chocolate donuts, right? It's part of this kind of neo-Pavlovian conditioning. So I'm not sure that it's death is insignificant. I just think that it's it's clearly something that they place in a young person's self-consciousness. They take them to see people die, uh, but they just want them to view it as like not sad. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so you're not, it, you're not supposed to grieve. Uh, yeah. You know, so it's, it's, not it, sad. it's strange if you were to grieve, you're, 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 you're taking your own life as being too important. And so I, I think in that sense, you're not to regard life or death as any sort of great importance, I think. Um, so it's, it's something that the, the significance, the deeper significance has to be conditioned out. Um, and so, so that's the sense in which death doesn't have a place in the world, not in the sense of course, that they don't die, but the dying sort of is, is something not of any, you know, great, great, uh, moment in, in human life. It's, it's something that happens. You lived your life. Uh, you had a lot of pleasure and then, you know, it's, it's no more. So I have uh, stuck to this word of conditioning on yeah. purpose because that's what education is. It's just a training of pleasures and pains. And most of the so-called moral education is, comes in the form of hypnopedia, <laughs> yeah. where it's like a sleep conditioning. So you hear a bunch of stuff while you're sleeping, but yeah. it's just slogans. It's just like cheap slogans that then you have in your head and you can recall. But it's not like you have a story about why you think this. I've mentioned some of these slogans already, like we belong to everyone, right? And you're like, some of it is like you're you're supposed to accept your that your class is is the best place to be. You don't want to be like those alphas, or if you're an alpha, you don't you wouldn't want to be like the epsilons, um, and you know. But so all, all yeah, all those things are just sort of things that you're sort of conditioned to have. And certainly, I think some of the influences here in the background for Huxley, uh, sort of the behaviorism uh, in psychology that was that was becoming prominent at that time. There's of course this sort of Freudianism. I think that's there as well. Uh, even the sort of as you were mentioning, the sort of like young sexuality stuff that's that's sort of being promoted and um and even this yeah i i you know that i think even the morality thing is sort of like it's the it's the the super ego right you're sort of taking on like what society tells you but un- unlike uh unlike freud i think it doesn't make us neurotic you know the, the goal is that it won't make you neurotic but will help you to accept your place in society and to sort of get over the sort of things that cause people pain and suffering in their lives. Um, so in that sense, it's not, it's not a Freudian world exactly, but um, it, it, yeah. so I think that's a background influence. Um, Once you're an adult, psychotropic drugs become yeah. extremely important in this society. So why don't you tell us about that? Yeah. So one of the big ones is Soma. It's like a happiness drug. And uh, Mustafa at the end calls it Christianity without tears. It's basically that um, we can be happy just by taking a drug, we, you know, uh, without virtue in a way. Uh, although, I mean, maybe there's a virtue of like, you know, like maintaining stability in the society and that keeps you happy, but not in a sort of traditional sense of we might think of the relationship between 
virtue and happiness. So whenever they're a little sad, they, they take, they take some soma. Now, if you take it too much, it might kill you, but you take just, you're, you're trying to get just the right amount of soma. Uh, there's also these things called the feelies that they go to. They're a little bit like the, the movies, but they're like these totally total all encompassing sensory experiences where, you know, you, you're watching a movie, but you get some smells and there's sounds and it's ultimately like leads to like some orgasmic experience um, this, this is a great game, Centrifugal Bumble Puppy, I believe, if I'm getting yeah. the, uh, <laughs> I'm not going to be able to explain exactly what that involves, but, uh, so, you know, there's these games that you're supposed to play with others that involve, you know, like, um, get people this, have this kind of, like, uh, community feel, um, and then there are the solidarity services, which lead up to Orgy Porgy. Poor Bernard. Marks. <laughs> he can like never get into it. So he's like, yeah, you know, he's like the housewife who's like always faking an orgasm. Like he, yeah. like he knows he's supposed to be like shouting certain stuff and like yeah. experiencing some kind of ecstasy, but like he never feels anything and he <laughs> feels like incredibly, it's really comical, yeah. but it's also just bizarre. Like, I don't know what, like, is it a religious service? I think it's supposed to be. It's this sort of kind of like primal unity of sorts. I mean, I mean, anthropologically, some of this goes quite deep. I mean, you get these sort of like the way that like Eros connects up with maybe like an experience of the divine. And so in this sense, it may it may be one of their few experiences of the higher, but in this very strange way that ultimately leads to people like getting in a circle and like whacking each other, holding each other's rear end and sort of patting on the rear end this is orgy por <laughs> this is this is or orgy porgy uh which is, is sort of and then they like lie down and you know uh engage in coitus uh you know they there's like i think some couches sort of off the scene in which they they go and uh, engage in coitus uh and so yeah i mean i think it's some kind of experience of transcendence i mean i, I guess it's an element of, of homo religiosis uh that's just sort of bizarre so yeah it binds people together in society right and then it's ultimately like has a sort of hedonistic end it sort of fits within the the hedonistic paradigm of the society so um yeah but it is humorous i mean yeah just the name itself orgy porgy and you know you get this image of these people like dancing around in a circle and you know so i think maybe at this point the last like bit of scaffolding that we need to have this conversation is to just talk about some of the main characters. So we've been talking about Bernard Marx. What what's his job again? He's he's, he, he's a sleep learning specialist. So he's a psychologist. Okay. Yeah, right. You know, he's he's a little bit of an outsider. Yeah, um, not just because he's like physically inadequate um, for an alpha male, but also he's got some funny ideas. He also is not so much on board with the way things are constructed. So maybe we could talk about that a little bit. Yeah, he's, um, I mean, so there's some discontent, I think, as you already indicated, with his his feelings at the, the Solidarity Service. And he doesn't like how uh, another character treats Lenina. Uh, so Lenin, as I said, is going sort of steady in a sort of disreputable way by the conventions of the society with Henry Foster. But Henry Foster often like talks about her and sort of like, well, I think today we would think about is is demeaning ways. 
what um, Bernard objects to is that Henry Foster does regard her as meat and sort of talks about her with his friends and, and that sort of thing. So, um, so he, he's not totally, I think, comfortable with aspects of the sexual ethic, if you want to call it that, the sort of free love uh, sexual ethic. Um, so he, he's, he's not, I, I think a lot of the things that, that, that sort of pleasure seeking doesn't satisfy him. Um, again, he, I think he, he does have this inferiority complex that leads him to kind of feel alienated. Although he does have one other friend who's an important character, uh, in the novel, which is Hem, Hemholtz Watson. Helmholtz Watson. Yeah, what a great, great name. Great name. It's a great name. <laughs> uh, he, he's, he's like, better looking than Bernard. Uh, and he's also a, a professor or a lecturer at the College of Emotional Engineering. Uh, but he also feels like he doesn't fit because he feels like he has these literary talents that are not being deployed. He's got something to say, but he doesn't have any venue to say it because everything's, right. sort, everything's sort of used for propaganda. So um, so they're both sort of misfits. And I think um, in, in there being misfits, that they sort of bond over this. It ultimately gets them into trouble. I agree with that. But I think the one kind of disposition that they have that makes them in a way like freaks, um, but yeah. it also eventually gets them into a lot of trouble is that they kind of have this disposition to reflect. They both like kind of see themselves as individuals and yeah. not just parts of this broader collective. Yeah. And I think that's connected to their tendency to want to embrace a posture of reflection and yeah, even right. contemplation. So yeah. like, yeah. there's this really telling scene. I can't remember if it's Bernard or Helmholtz. There's this scene where they're like, and they're, I don't know, of course it's a future novel. So there's like flying cars or whatever. So Bernard or Helmholtz, like whoever it is, is just like wanting to appreciate beauty, like yeah, nature. Yeah. And yep. Lenina is like, why would you do that? Yeah. Um, like the idea that you would just contemplate something that's beautiful. Yeah. Um, just because it's beautiful, not because you're going to use it. Right. So like, you know, Bernard thinks that Lenina is beautiful because she is. Yeah. Right. Um, but he just sort of wants to appreciate that and not just see her as a locus of his own sexual desire, not see her as something to be consumed or used by yeah. him. Like right. she's not just an instrument for his gratification. He's got this, you know, from the perspective of the world state, like weird problematic disposition to reflection and contemplation. Like that's they're a little bit philosophical. It's a problem. Yeah, no, that's right. I think, um, yeah, I mean, so one of the things they, they both like solitude, uh, whereas everyone's right. supposed to always be in community and it's in solitude that, you know, we have time for contemplation. Yeah. And so he doesn't want to immediately jump into the sack with uh, Lenina, but he wants to have, you know, this sort of contemplative experience, show her these beautiful sights, right? Uh, you know, something that, you know, seems not just a matter of, uh, I mean, I think he has genuine, you might say erotic love rather than than mere lust for Lenina. And so he wants to share something of, of deep importance, a kind of contemplative beauty that, that he wants to share, but she doesn't get it at all. Um, yeah. And so I, I think this theme of like contemplation, uh, especially sort of the goods of truth and beauty uh, come out later in, in the discussion between, between John and Mustafa. 
uh, towards the end. Um, so I, I, yeah, I think what I was going to, I was going to say that this, this way that they're alienated, I think is really important because, um, in many ways, people are living this kind of infantile existence, just looking for their kind of immediate gratification, right? And so the the alienation that they experience is what allows them to step back and to come into a more distinctively human mode of self-consciousness. So uh, I've been thinking a bit about the Garden of Eden story. I was reading Hegel's account of the Garden of Eden. Uh, and I was also reading Leon Cass's book on Genesis. And uh, Oh, that's a great book. Yeah, I love that book. And uh, this idea that the that the Garden of Eden story is not just a fall, but in some sense, it's also a rise. And it's, it's a humanization. Uh, and you see this, I mean, con in Kant's reading and Hegel's reading, they both have this reading uh, of the Garden of Eden story that it, that the sin is, is a sort of break into a higher, higher self-consciousness, you know, even in the experience of shame. And, and so in a way, you need this experience of alienation to ultimately get to this sort of higher level, right, of, of moral and spiritual self-consciousness. So I think both um, both uh, Helmholtz, Helmholtz and Bernard, because of their alienation, the way that they feel themselves to be different, they're not, they're not just in the sort of like uh, infantile state of, you know, that their conditioning has, has was supposed to anyways uh, predispose them to. I think that they are able to take up this sort of higher mode of, of self-conscious experience, which uh, leads them to want solitude and to, to seek contemplation. And so, and to not be happy with sort of the, uh, the pleasures of the moment, but want something more, more meaningful. Um, so you're, so you're suggesting that they've lost their innocence in a sense. That's right. Yeah. Um, yeah. the sort of innocence that they're conditioned to, to be in. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. I hadn't thought about it that way, but that's yeah. that's really interesting. Um, so let's let's talk about John. Yeah. Let's talk about John. How does John come on the scene? Yeah. And who is he? No, I think that's an interesting discussion of who who is the real protagonist. I mean, John doesn't show up till about halfway through the novel. Uh, Bernard mm -hmm. Bernard seems to be the the main character, as it were. But you might say that um, that maybe Bernard is one sense a main, the main character, or at least a main character, of course. Uh, but John in some, way, some ways I think is the hero, the tragic hero of, of the novel. So uh, Bernard takes, wants to take Lenina on this trip to New Mexico uh, to visit this savage re re reservation that is um, where people haven't been conditioned this way. They haven't been genetically engineered. Um, and on this reservation he he finds uh john and his mother linda who are not uh native people but in fact um linda had come from uh from uh this from this world order that they're a part of from the, the um from london uh and was was actually there herself on a holiday with the director of the the hatchery and conditioning center who uh had impregnated her um which under normal conditions uh, wouldn't have happened. And if it did happen, it would lead to an abortion. Um, but they're on a walk and they get separated. Uh, Linda falls down a hill and, and ultimately the director goes back to London. She's left there. She doesn't want to go back because she's pregnant uh, and that's seen as a disgrace. So she's pregnant with John uh, and she ends up raising John in this, this savage community in New Mexico. But he himself never fully fits within that community. Um, 
but he's not a part of this the brave new world either um but and his education is i mean in one sense he has a sort of typical education of of someone who was you know in in the brave new world uh but he is also given shakespeare and so um he has uh you know um for a savage he has what we might think of as a more civilized actually a civilized education um and so John also, I think, is an alienated character. He doesn't he doesn't uh, have a place uh, in an important sense, and so I think he has that alienated self consciousness that also allows him to to think differently, to also desire solitude and to seek out uh, contemplation and, and, and deeper kinds of relationships and modes of being in the world. So. Um, yeah, so he kind of straddles two worlds and he doesn't really fit yeah. in either. So he is, I mean, he's really an exile. That's it's right, yeah. Clear. He's alienated in some respect. He doesn't fit. Um, yeah. Yeah, because he, um, so there are some strange shamanistic religious practices on the reservation. So we see one, and it seems to be a ritual that's like meant to, prove like a young boy's manhood yeah um and involves like a lot of whipping and like blood sprinkling on snakes and stuff self-flagellation i believe so he's like really into this stuff and obviously his his mom isn't um i mean his mom yeah. basically is kind of self-medicating on what appears to be like the local version of tequila or something yeah. <laughs> and, and she's just trying to what Linda associates most with civilization is Soma. Yeah. And it's what she misses the most. And she's like constantly telling John like, Oh, you just take this pill and it's so great. And like, I want to take you there like everyone. And she's also like really obsessed with the fact that in civilization, everyone is really clean. And it's like, I, I don't know, Huxley, for whatever reason, really dwells on the fact that the reserve, like people on the reservation are not attractive. It's not like the contrast is between civilization and something that's like, obviously better. It's like when you read about the reservation, you don't think, oh, well, that's where, <laughs> you know, that's where you want to be. No, yeah. it's kind of like a contrast of like two extremes. Yeah, no, I think that's right. And I think that's, and I think that's part of the dilemma for, for John is he doesn't, neither place does he fit nor does he want to be, I think, in an important sense. Uh, I mean, the way that he and his mother are treated is awful. Uh, he's really, again, he's not really allowed to take, take part in anything there. Um, yeah, and, and the religious beliefs are these sort of, I mean, there's elements of Christianity in the, in the religious, sort of, it's a sort of syncretistic kind of religious beliefs. So he's referring to all these various gods, but also Jesus sneaks in there and, you know, so and Mary, uh, Mary, yeah. I think, yeah, yeah. Mary too. yeah. So, yeah. um, yeah. So, I mean, he, he really is, he's not really given any kind of bearings in an important way to, to like find his own place. I mean, so he's got all these different kind of maybe conflicting beliefs in some way, but what he has is Shakespeare and, uh, so a lot of a lot of his own sort of emotional life is, is processed through that, but that doesn't make him sort of fit there very well either. Um, yeah, and so, so ultimately they, they do go they do go back to London because uh, Bernard has has been threatened to be exiled um, for his you know for his 
being unorthodox. And so he sees an opportunity here once he learns that it was, uh, I mean, he actually had learned, learned previously from, uh, from the director himself of his own trip there. And he, sort of, he becomes aware that this child is, is the director's and it's this director who wants to banish him. So he, he sees an opportunity here. So he wants to bring back uh, Linda and John to civilization in, in the brave new world. Uh, and so it's, I think what you get is this sort of clash between John and this, this world uh, that has been created in, in London at this time. Um, and so I think that's where a lot of the sort of interesting uh, ideas come out. Uh, I think John particular, I mean, Helmholtz and Bernard sort of allow this sort of like observer perspective on on uh, the Brave New World. But it's really John, I think, who who wasn't conditioned there uh, and who who's read Shakespeare and in, in a way that uh, I mean, where, whereas uh, Helmholtz, Helmholtz, who's a professor, right, hasn't read any Shakespeare. And he thinks it's, you know, when John reads him some Shakespeare, he thinks it's kind of silly. Uh, it's very nicely worded, but, you know, the emotions are, are very strange and foreign the same. Uh, Bernard, this is this is also a foreign world to him. So I think the sort of distance from that society is even greater, and so I think mm -hmm. that allows for a lot of a lot of in interesting contrasts that come out uh, when they go back to London. Linda and John both go back to London, um, and so John um, is confronted with the world state, and sort of in a way he's like put on display. You know, yeah. it kind of reminds me of like when the Spanish would bring back savages to parade in front of the king and the queen like oh but john is very horrified yeah by this world that his mother was always claiming is so great so what is the basis of his horror yeah so um i, I should maybe mention another a bit of the detail and they come back so bernard becomes very famous you know uh because he's like he's like the custodian of the savage, right? Sort of pick up on your point. So he starts having all these parties where he parades John around, but uh, John doesn't want to be a part of these parties because he, he ultimately comes to see this society is very shallow. I mean, he's in he's in love with uh, Lenina, uh, and Lenina is is also attracted to him, but she wants to you know as as a woman of the brave new world wants to you know just uh, get into the sack right away, whereas um, John, in, in a way, even more so than Bernard, I think, has these romantic ideals that uh, he, he wants to prove himself worthy. Uh, I mean, he, you know, he wants his, you know, uh, I mean, sort of in keeping maybe with some of the, you know, the self-flagellation, he wants to like, you know, you know, wants to uh, prove himself in some way, right? Want, wants, I mean, he has these ideals of, of nobility and heroism that just have no place in the world state. Um, and so in light of those ideals, I think he finds this world of, of sort of free love and just, uh, so sort of the hedonistic life. So Lenina takes him to the feelies, uh, and he's, he's just not feeling it, uh, so to speak. So one of the things that he says that I think is really telling, um, is he's like, look, well, so the thing that he finds most offensive, I think is Soma. Yeah, so the thing so. that his mother loves the most is the thing that offends him the most. Yeah. And that is the taking of Soma. And why does he not like this? He says it's a false or a lying happiness. Yeah, that's right. And I think that's a really um, interesting way of putting it. He says, you know, I, I want to undergo something yeah. nobly, right? 
I want to, and it's kind of like, like you talked about heroism, but I think some of it's fortitude. He wants to be a good person in some sense. Like he wants to suffer trials and prove himself. And, um, and he's just like, what is this? What is the value in just taking a pill, a pill and feeling good? Like this is incredibly unappealing to him and he can't understand why everyone is going in for this. So the scenes between him and Lenina, they kind of go back and forth between being comical and just being sad (laughs) because it's really clear that he has um, a a very genuine human attraction to her, which of course in part is sexual, but is much deeper than that. He sees, he recognizes in her a deeper kind of beauty and a deeper kind of value. And he wants to have like a real relationship with her. And she is also attracted to him, but is incapable of wanting something more than she's been conditioned to recognize. And so the exchanges between them, again, go, they just... (laughs) They're in turns, you know, like sad and hilarious because they just can't understand one another. And I think one of the things that's really interesting about John, which is kind of like, it's not really explained or explored. It's just there is that chastity is very important to him. Chastity and fidelity and Mm -hmm. monogamy are all very important to him. Now, some of that is obviously just because of how society is organized on the reservation, but he's very offended on some deep level by what he perceives as like the impurity of, you know, the denizens of the world state. Yeah. Yeah. I think he, he finds it ultimately degrading. I I think part of the desire for purity is, is this, um, I mean, he wants something higher something you know something noble something higher to, to strive for and he sees this sort of pleasure seeking as ultimately degrading i mean it degrades us at a number of levels one is that it's false uh and we don't want to live i mean there, there is i think there's an interesting theme of truth here that we want to live in the truth um but um that yeah that it, it lacks the higher ideals i think i mean he, he has this interesting bit of the discussion i think which will come more to where he he talks about um you know isn't god God, God, like ultimately punishes us for our vices, and and the punishment here is a kind of degradation. These pleasant vices ultimately are their own punishment because they lead to a kind of degradation. And so, yeah, he well, wants... there he's he's actually quoting King Lear. Yeah, uh, yeah, he's quoting Shakespeare a lot. So it's, sometimes it's hard yeah. to know where, you know, how much. I mean, there's this sort of question, you know, like how much does Huxley just of saying it's all like uh behave you know you're we're conditioned to to have these different thoughts and he happens to be conditioned into shakespeare a sort of shakespeare no, I, don't, yeah. I, no I don't think huxley is saying that at all i think that yeah he's constantly referencing shakespeare but of course shakespeare contains a lot of truth about the human being and that is the basis of its value as art well let's just jump ahead to chapters 16 and 17 which yeah. are Indisputably the best best (laughs) chapters in the novel. So this is where we really get to the heart of the matter. So this is where John meets 
this very interesting, powerful figure, Mustafa Mond. Yeah. So why don't we talk about who Mustafa Mond is? Yeah, and just to get to how we got to this scene is that uh, back to the Soma point. So his his mother, Linda, takes Soma. She gets back and it's just constantly on Soma, and ultimately she takes it to a point where it causes her to die. Uh, he goes there and he, he sort of has this sort of grieving reaction, which people don't understand at, at this this hospital. And uh, he ultimately, you know, destroys all the Soma that they're distributing there. Uh, and Bernard and Helmholtz are called to the scene. And uh, Helmholtz, to his credit, actually, like, participates in it um, and helps, helps John to, like, throw the Soma out the window. Uh, whereas uh, Bernard is sort of cowardly in this moment and doesn't really doesn't really uh, lend a helping hand. And so, but anyways, they're all brought to uh, Mustafa Mond uh, because now they're in trouble. They've upset the social order. Uh, and so it's a scene that, first of all, begins with, um, you know, with all three of them there with Mustafa Mond, who's, he's, he's the, uh, the controller of, of Western Europe. So there's these different, I think 10 different zones. And so he's, He's the controller of, of Western Europe. And I think even this idea of calling him the controller, I think, is is a significant title, right? I mean, it sort of embodies this this um, sort of choosing controlling stance to, to the to life that I think is represented in in um, in the Brave New World uh, in this world state, uh, as opposed to something more like an accepting, appreciating state. Uh, or a stance towards the world that we might take. I, I mean, I think, you know, we all adopt these, uh, these stances in our lives in different ways, but the, the world, the brave new world, all, all of it's about controlling and shaping things towards a sort of stable world where everyone's having pleasure. Um, and so he's the controller. He's sort of the ultimate controller of, of this part of the world state. Um, and so I think that title itself is significant, but, you know, he himself was, you know, he was a scientist and he started, um, you know, started getting himself into trouble, was maybe going to be exiled. Uh, so he's also an alpha. And so he was sort of given the choice. He can go off to some island and do his his uh, his his science or, you know, he can be, be sort of trained to be a, a controller. And he he chose to be a controller. I mean, in, in many ways, he reminds me of uh, the Grand Inquisitor and Dostoevsky's The Brothers Karamazov. And even yeah. some of the same same themes of like freedom yeah. versus happiness, right, yes. uh, are, are there. And um, so he, he, he sort of like took one for the team, so to speak. I mean, he sees it almost as like, as like, as like a utilitarian sense of duty, right? We're trying to promote the greatest happiness for the greatest number. Uh, right. He, and also, and also just to strengthen your analogy with the yeah. Grand Inquisitor, like he's deeply cynical, yeah. like he sort of doesn't believe in what he's doing, but he um, sees that it's necessary. Yeah, he has contempt for the people he's, you know, ruling over that they're not capable of loving Shakespeare. And uh, right. so you, you got to you got to give them bread and not Shakespeare. So to, to use a kind of Dostoevsky line, I think I think Dostoevsky yeah. actually used that line of uh, uh, bread versus Shakespeare. I think that was actually in Demons, uh, this contrast between Shakespeare and, and bread, which also plays out in, in, in the Grand Inquisitor as well. Um, yeah, so. But he, but in a way, you know, like the Grand Inquisitor and like Ivan, who, who Karamazov, who constructs this this uh, fable of the Grand Inquisitor, um, is also a deep soul in some ways. I mean, he's not a shallow person, 
Um, I mean, he's not like this. It's not the kind of leveling sort of thing that we might think sometimes with utilitarianism. I mean, he's maybe like a John Stuart Mill kind of utilitarianist. He actually like reads some poetry, you know, and has, you know, maybe has a sense of the higher pleasures as, as Mill calls it, but still wants to, you know, like maximize happiness. I think some people may, you know, they may, they just, they aren't capable of, of these things and, uh, to ma- maintain stability in society. Uh, ultimately this is, this is a greater, greater good to have stability and not, you know, have people feeling too passionately about anything. Uh, you know, he, he sort of maintains this, this order of, of the, the, uh, the brave new world in, in Western Europe. Just to help out our listeners who don't know what utilitarianism is, utilitarianism um, is a kind of moral theory that argues that the highest good or the ultimate rational end and also the standard which measures the rightness of human conduct is that it maximizes the happiness of the aggregate or the whole Um, where happiness is specifically understood in a hedonistic register. So happiness is, um, you're you're happy if you have more pleasures than pains. On the whole, and it's a a very quantitative thing. Like, I mean, so I'm also right now teaching Sidgwick. (laughs) Um, And it's hilarious. Oh, no, actually, it's really boring. But Sometimes it's really hilarious because he's like going in detail, like how you're going through empirical introspection, like how you're going to do this bizarre, like utilitarian calculus. And anyway, I, I, I find all of this ridiculous, but yeah. Um, this is like a real view that many people hold. And let's not pretend that there isn't a lot of utilitarian calculus going on. Yeah. Um, especially in medical ethics, but it's pretty yeah. clear that that's the perspective of the world state. Yeah, I, I and I think I think Huxley means it to be some kind of utilitarian dystopia. Um, yeah, you know, as as ultimately a critique of that. But yeah, I mean, so yeah, Mustafa Mond is. I mean, he's he's sort of. I, I say he's complex because he's he's not just this like the, uh, you know, sort of Benthamite, so Jeremy Bentham, who said pushpin, which is a sort of board game at that time, is just as good as poetry. Um, That was something that uh, John Stuart Mill, later utilitarian, um, was uh, critical of, and he wanted to distinguish between higher and lower pleasures. But once you start making the distinction between higher and lower pleasures, it's not clear you're a utilitarian anymore. Because well, it's not, it's not clear you're a hedonist. Um, this is Sidgwick's argument against Mill. He's yeah. like, look, you know, Mill wants to recognize these higher pleasures, and that sounds nice, except that he's clearly introducing a non-hedonic ground. Exactly, yeah. And But then you've, like, given up on hedonism, so sorry, we just have to accept. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that... It, <laughs> And Mill actually says in a way that I think John would appreciate, it's better to be Socrates dissatisfied than a fool satisfied. Better be, you know, and so that's a very non-hedonistic. And insofar as we think utilitarianism is tied to hedonism, it's not really utilitarianism. But in any case, I think Mustafa Mond is actually, you know, I think he recognizes there are these higher pleasures, including of knowledge and and beauty, art and so forth, even religion. Um, but he doesn't think most people are capable of, of pursuing these more noble ends uh, 
in a way that is conducive with everyone being happy and having stability in society. He talks about this on page 177. So Mustafa Mond is a censor. So he's constantly having yeah. to censor like whatever whatever people are producing. So he's reading this paper, A New Theory of Biology, um, what, but he's not gonna let it be published because it refers to teleology. And he's <laughs> like, um, he's like, it was a masterly piece of work. But once you began admitting explanation in terms of purpose, well, you didn't know what the result might be. It was the sort of idea that might easily decondition the more unsettled minds amongst the higher castes. It might make them lose their faith and happiness as the sovereign good and take to believing instead that the goal was somewhere beyond somewhere outside the present human sphere, that the purpose of life was not the maintenance of well-being, but some intensification and refining of consciousness, yeah. some enlargement of knowledge, which was, the controller reflected, quite possibly true, <laughs> but not in the present circumstances yeah. admissible, right? Yeah. So it's this really deep cynicism, like, yeah, like that's probably actually true, but can't have the truth because the truth is not conducive to stability. Yeah. Um, so the once whenever the truth cuts against the practical ends that the world state is intent on realizing, well, then we just can't have the truth. Yeah. No, I think it is a sort of like wanting to cut off the transcendent that which like any good beyond the present social order that we could be striving for any sense that the heart is restless and will not be sort of satisfied by something, you know, some more imminent good that we can attain readily, you know, through drugs or through, you know, casual sex. Um, and, and that is a kind of upsetting of, yeah, of, of the social order. So the world state is constructed so yeah. in such a way that it's completely opposed to any experience or recognition of the transcendent. So like yeah. everything has to be imminent, right? You're like you live and society is constructed so that you live in this very narrow now, right? Yeah. And you have to stay there. Yeah. And that's why solitude is discouraged. Yeah. That's why deep, meaningful relationships, which would actually depend on like dialogue <laughs> and yeah. the sharing of like genuine emotions. Um, all of that is discouraged because all of those are forms of self-transcendence, right? Where you yeah. kind of, you step back and you sort of take a posture where you can go a level deeper. Um, and that is, that's not good for stability, right? Yeah. Um, because that's when you start to have really deep, powerful emotions, which might lead to tension and conflict yeah. and all that's bad. Yeah. In this sense, I think um, you can read this brave new world as sort of like um, a fulfillment or sort of a... Um, um, sort of the direction where a certain element of, of we might call a, a, the modern project, if we want to call it that way, leads. So if you think about um, in political philosophy, we see this in, in John Rawls. He's always, I mean, he, he'll refer back to the wars of religion, right? The way that these religious conflicts 
led to all these problems. And so like his, his form of, of political liberalism is meant to solve these problems of, of conflict where you kind of just privatize that stuff. Right. I mean, I think you see this going back to figures like Hume and his critique of the monkish virtues, right. If it's not useful to society, then, you know, we should sort you know, it's, we should kind of banish it and, and, and get rid of it as much as we can. Or, or um, I think Rawls is sort of interesting. You sort of more or less kind of privatize any kind of religious belief um, where this is like going beyond privatization, you just sort of try to condition it out of people, right? Uh, and so it won't ca cause these this disturbance. Now, I mean, I think there's a question of like, how realistic is it that people will like, like want to go along with this? I mean, it sort of depends upon how maybe how successful you think any sort of condition can be. I think already we see in, in this novel that it's not successful with everyone. Uh, so these people are sort of banished to islands who, who don't go along with it. But, um, you know, I mean, um, is a world of like free love, is that really a stable world? I mean, I think there are arguments for monogamy that, that argue that actually monogamy is needed for a certain kind of social stability. Uh, you see this in kind of sociobiological arguments for monogamy and, uh, and, and things of this sort. And of course, people have also argued that religion is important, at least if everyone shares the religion. You think about someone like Durkheim, um, you know, we're, you know, the religion is sort of what binds the social order together. But of course, we're now living in this sort of post-Durkheimian condition where we don't share one common religious belief. So maybe in that world, this is this is one possible solution. But it is interesting. I mean, I think he is, I mean, he says that like, like modern civilization doesn't have a place for God because we've chosen stability and like uh, this, you know, sort of mechanistic scientific consumer culture. Yeah, but it's not just God that you can't have. Like you can't have real Science. human emotion. Yeah, or you yeah. can't have. So, um, so if you look on page two twenty, um, so here he's trying to say like why Othello, why Shakespeare isn't valuable. Yeah. So he's like, so this is Mustafa Man talking to John. The world's stable now. People are happy. They get what they want and they never want what they can't get. They're well off, they're safe, they're never ill, they're not afraid of death. They're blissfully ignorant of passion and old age. They're plagued with no mothers or fathers. They've got no wives or children or lovers to feel strongly about. They're so conditioned that they practically can't help behaving as they ought to behave. And if anything should go wrong, there's Soma, which you go and chuck out of the window in the name of liberty, <laughs> yeah. right? Mr. Savage, liberty, he laughed. <laughs> so I mean, yeah. Yeah. you just can't even love someone. Yeah. And, and I mean like really basic, normal human loves, like the love that a parent has for their child, which is incredibly natural. Um, it does not need to be taught to anyone. Um, and yeah, I mean, all of that is out because all of it is going to ultimately cut against stability. Yeah. Um, you can't, you know, these, these very human passions. So yeah, this, you know, the sort of passions of, of, of romantic love. Uh, there's also, you know, discussion of beauty with high art, but also experience of nature, contemplation of nature. Science itself has to be regulated, this concern for the truth for its own sake. Um, I mean, these are all things that, you know, that Mustafa Mann argues can upset the social order. Um, but again, I, I guess I come back to is this, uh, I mean, I mentioned sociobiology, but I think from within our kind of human experience, um, you know, I, I don't 
find the soci the sociobiological accounts of defenses of monogamy are, are not you know partic you know particularly illuminating. I don't think most people get married because um, because they're taking one for civilization, but rather it comes out of the experience of erotic love itself. That when you love someone, you want to bind your life together with them. Uh, and I think I think people have a, a need to belong. I mean, just to go back to this theme of alienation that I've that I've I've brought uh, up earlier. Um, I think it sort of gets into the kind of questions of philosophical anthropology. What are human beings like? And I think one of our human needs is to belong. Um, you know, they, they all belong to the world state, but it's it's sort of like abstract and impersonal. Whereas you know, belonging in a family or, or belonging to your 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 uh, spouse, for instance, and then creating a family, um, I think I think that's a a deep human need. And I I don't know how you even from even within these goods of stability, uh, I think without belonging, I think there will be instability. So I mean, there's there's an aspect of like how realistic is this world that uh, Mustafa Mond has helped to create? Is this something? Is it a human world? Is it one that could be sustained in any sort of like um, any any recognizably human being today would be someone who would want to live this? I mean, we give these sort of like in ethics, you know, when you're teaching utilitarianism, I'm sure you like me will bring up the the, the happiness machine. Would you want to, you know, would you want to sort of connect to the happiness machine? And a lot of people I say, you bring that up. Yes. <laughs> a lot of students will say, yeah, maybe for the weekend, but very few um would want to uh you know go on with it forever um or for for the whole of their life and one of the reasons they bring up is because they wouldn't want to live something that's false they won't they wouldn't want to live right. live a life that's false and um so uh i mean i think this is part of why john becomes the hero of the novels because he's pushing back on uh mustafa man's sort of you know cynical utilitarian argument and uh in favor of these sort of like higher ideals, uh, you know, r romantic love, the love of beauty, the love of truth, ultimately uh, a kind of religious sensibility uh, he's advocating. I give a lot of talks about happiness. Yeah. And I also engage in a lot of debates with hedonistic psychologists or, um, or people who are not psychologists, but are very enamored of hedonistic psychology. So I was recently in a dialogue with this lawyer at the University of Chicago, is in the law school, is totally committed to the principles of hedonistic psychology and completely invested in the idea that getting in the experience machine is the most rational thing to do. He really is just completely convinced that the only thing that matters is your subjective experience. And he's completely um, convinced that the only thing that's really bad is suffering. Um, whereas like I'm on stage being like, suffering is awesome. What's wrong with you? And like, actually to be human, you have to learn to suffer well. Yeah. Um, and if you can't do it, there's just no way that you're going to thrive. Of course, we're all now getting a, a master class in suffering. Yeah. But um, I just want to draw your attention to um, Mustafa Mann's kind of speech against fortitude. So yeah. this is on page 236. There isn't any need for a civilized man to bear anything that's seriously unpleasant. And as for doing things, Ford forbid that he should get the idea into his head. It would upset the whole social order if men started doing things on their own. And then he goes on. My dear young friend, 
Civilization has absolutely no need of nobility or heroism. These things are symptoms of political inefficiency. In a properly organized society like ours, nobody has any opportunities for being noble or heroic. Conditions have got to be thoroughly unstable before the occasion can even arise. Where there are wars, where there are divided allegiances, where there are temptations to be resisted, objects of love to be fought for or defended, there, obviously, nobility and heroism have some sense. But there aren't any wars nowadays. The greatest care is taken to prevent you from loving anyone too much. There's no such thing as a divided allegiance. You're so conditioned that you can't help doing what you ought to do. And what you ought to do is on the whole so pleasant. So many of the natural impulses are allowed free play that there really aren't any temptations to resist. And if ever by some unlucky chance, anything unpleasant should somehow happen, why, there's always Soma to give you a holiday from the facts. And there's always Soma to calm your anger, to reconcile you to your enemies, to make you patient and long-suffering. In the past, you could only accomplish these things by making a great effort and after years of hard moral training. But now you swallow two or three half-gram tablets and there you are. Anybody can be virtuous now. You can carry at least half your mortality about in a bottle. It's Christianity without tears. That's what Soma is. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, this is brilliant. This is yeah. like really actually a kind of a brilliant distillation of the perspective of a lot of people that I argue with all the time. Yeah. <laughs> so this isn't, I mean, so you asked at the beginning, like, can we imagine really living in the brave new world? I feel like we're already halfway there. Certainly the idea that sex would be mostly contraceptive Hello. <laughs> Certainly the idea that casual sex or sex just for the sake of pleasure would be completely normalized and fine and encouraged. <laughs> Hi, that's our world. Um, the idea that like we would think that the only true evil is suffering. That is our world. This is our world. These are what the experts think. These are what people teach at our elite institutions. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that's uh, that's part of the cultural air we breathe, and you will find some philosophers who will defend it, uh, no doubt. Um, yeah, I guess my question still is, is can we live it? I, I want to back up from the passage you read, which I think is a really important one, because, I mean, I think part of what you're getting at is a kind of value subjectivism that I think is a sort of preference satisfaction view the sort of hedonistic mentality of the, the person you were you were debating or having a dialogue with at, uh, from University of Chicago. Um, this is this is just prior to that where he's talking about um, um, he's he's talking he talks about King Lear and he says what about now doesn't there seem to be a god managing things punishing and rewarding well does there question the controller uh, you know, and sort of give reasons to why he says that. He says, are you sure, asked the sap, this is uh, now John, are you sure, are you quite sure that, that the Edmund in the pneumatic chair hasn't uh, been just as heavily punished as the Edmund who's wounded and bleeding to death? The gods are just, haven't they used his pleasant vices as an instrument to degrade him? Degrade him from what position? This is a controller. As, as a happy, hardworking, good consuming citizen, he's perfect. Of course, if you choose some other standard than ours, then perhaps you might say he's degraded, but you've got to stick with with uh, one set of postulates. You can't you can't play electric magnetic golf according to the rules of centrifugal bumble puppy. 
but this is this is a, a key line. He says, uh, "This now this is John." But values dwell not in per- in particular will," said the savage. "It uh, it holds his estimate and dignity as well as well, wherein tis precious of itself, as in the prizer." Come, come," protested Mustafa Man. "That's going rather far, isn't it?" Right. So there's this question of like, is there value in the world? Right. That we that. Yeah that it's part of virtue to be responsive to, right? And yeah. that's that's the crucial divide. Is there something to contemplate, to behold, to appreciate, uh, and to align our lives with? I mean, something yeah. transcendent, right? Where, right? I mean, so Mustafa Mond is denying any sense of transcendent value to which we should align our lives. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, again, it gets us into philosophical anthropology. Like, what are human beings like? Are we, as I argue in my book, the meaning seeking animal that seek, uh, you know, to be responsive to values that are, are there in any case, uh, making demands upon us yeah. to, to align our lives with them. Um, and are, are people really satisfied, for instance, with casual sex, right? Uh, I teach sexual ethics. I don't know. A lot of people seem to me. They seem, well, <laughs> they seem to be maybe, but I'm not, I, I don't know. I, I'm not sure about that. If you, if you watch some of these, uh, because I taught this class in sexual ethics, so uh, I have to say that because I, I watched a couple of these uh, movies like Friends with Benefits and Wedding Crashers, and uh, I forget the names. There's there's one other one, but they all like you know it's about like friends with benefits hooking up, and it's like hey, you want to just have fun, right? Well, lo and behold, they all discover that they have feelings for each other, and like the movie ends with them like getting married or like forming a more serious commitment. Um, and there's some sense in which we wouldn't be satisfied with the movie in, in one sense with, without that kind of uh, development of some kind of feeling. It wouldn't seem to be a human story. It would rather just be like pornography, softcore pornography, right? Now, a lot of people do, you know, look at pornography. And uh, so this is a reality. I a mean, lot I, of people. Yeah. Uh, I'm not denying that. But, um, you know, Anscombe you know, has this line in her, her essay on chastity about, you know, there's no such thing as casual sex, right? People can treat it casually, but they make themselves shallow and they degrade themselves in doing so, right? And so I think that's kind of in line with the argument that, that John himself is making is that it actually, you know, you, you can, you can treat things casually. You can treat things as not having significance, but in the process, it's actually its own kind of punishment. You degrade yourself, you become a shallow person, um, and I mean, the sort of question is, is it like, will you sooner or later, will you find that out? I think some people do, maybe some people are able to, you know, not be aware and maybe that's an even greater kind of degradation. But I, I think, you know, insofar as, you know, uh, we're living a recognizably human life, uh, we will, re- we will see that. But of course I'm using a normative notion of, of, of being human here, uh, sense yes. of, um, yeah, well, I mean, it's interesting because I just think that sexual morality is something about which there is such disagreement. I mean, yeah. you, you you sort of like took this Murdochian turn there where you're like, oh, well, is virtue about responding to the way the world really is? And, yeah. you know, I, and yeah, I mean, I'm totally with it, you on that. But it's interesting, yeah. like Murdoch herself, she certainly wasn't into chastity or thought it, it was responding yeah. to something real about the world. And so I think like you can have listeners who are very sympathetic to that general account, but they're just still not going to be convinced that chastity is onto anything important. 
Um, and I mean, we're not going to solve that now, but I'm just like flagging that um, as not only a possible view, but an actual view. You know, it was held by Iris Murdoch, um, for whom I have the greatest respect as a thinker. I think that you're highlighting something really important about transcendence and about being accountable to the world. And I think that there's a sense of transcendence that is linked up with what the medievals used to call the the transcendentals, right? Mm -hmm. Truth, goodness, beauty. These transcendentals are something that Mustafa Mond either wants to sideline or he wants to oppose. So if you look on um, page 228, it's a bit of historical context, I guess, because he's going back to the time when R. Ford was alive. So he says, (laughs) um, R. Ford himself did a great deal to shift the emphasis from truth and beauty to comfort and Mm -hmm. happiness. Mass production demanded the shift. Universal happiness keeps the wheels steadily turning. Truth and beauty can't. And of course, whenever the masses seized political power, then it was happiness rather than truth and beauty that mattered. Still, in spite of everything, unrestricted scientific research was still permitted. People still went on talking about truth and beauty as though they were the sovereign goods, right up until the time of the Nine Years' War. That made them change their tune. What's the point of truth or beauty or knowledge when the anthrax bombs are popping all around you? That was when the science first began to be controlled after the Nine Years' War. People were ready to have their appetites controlled, anything for a quiet life. And we've gone on controlling ever since. It hasn't been very good for truth, of course, but it's been very good for happiness. (laughs) You know, I mean, he sees this as like a choice. Like you can either have the transcendent or you can have happiness. And we chose happiness and like we're, we're ready to defend that choice. So let's let's skip ahead now. I mean, there's there seems to be this sort of dichotomy between happiness and freedom. Um, there, I mean, but there there's also a question of like what is happiness here, right? I mean, so we're accepting the terms of the discussion from Mustafa Mann and, and sort of pitching it as like freedom versus happiness, truth versus happiness. But part of what's up for dispute it actually is what is happiness. What we're going to see how uh, Mustafa Mann responds here to uh, to the creed de cour of of John is to say you're saying you have a right to be unhappy, right? Um, and so, um, yeah, I, I want to raise that issue and just generally to go with my sort of argument I'm trying to make here, um, which are you're nobly resisting, uh, is uh, you know I think people readily recognize it's not as a utopian novel but a dystopian novel. So, oh yeah. Um, so there's something about that, like, why wouldn't you want this, right? And I think that leads into this question of like, what does what does happiness uh, what does happiness consist in? Um, and I know you're resisting for, for to, to push push the dialogue. You know, I'm not saying that's your, your own view uh, that you're you're defending Mustafa Mann. I'm not saying that. I'm just uh, saying you know we should recognize. I think people readily like will see this as a dystopian novel, not as a utopia. Uh, and that that ra- again raises this question of like, what does happiness consist in? So to go to the the Cree de Cour here uh, at at the the end. Um, this is page two forty. Yeah, uh, I'm using a, a slightly older and more maybe raggedy edition. Uh, but yeah, he starts out by by saying. Uh, just sort of a, a little earlier than maybe what you're thinking. He says, 
what you need, the Savage went on, is something with tears for a change. Uh, nothing costs enough here, right? So uh, he wants a kind of uh, happiness that, that will cost something. So he goes on to say, I don't want comfort. I want God. I want poetry. I want real danger. I want freedom. I want goodness. I want sin, right? Um, and so Mustafa Mann says, in fact, you're claiming the right to be unhappy. All right, then, said the Savage defiantly, I'm claiming the right to be unhappy. Um, so that's that's really the crescendo of, of this sort of uh, argumentative exchange between John and Mustafa Mond. Uh, I would say in part what he's wanting is is a different kind of happiness, something that would be, you know, a genuinely meaningful life, right? Something worth living and dying for, something that can make you justify life in the world as worth living, even in spite yeah. of the suffering that's there, right? Yeah, but actually, I think you cut it off way too soon. So look, right. he says, I want the right to grow old and ugly and impotent, the right to have syphilis and cancer, the right to have too little to eat, the right to be lousy, the right to live in constant apprehension of what may happen tomorrow, the right to catch typhoid, the right to be tortured by unspeakable pains of every kind. There yeah. was a long silence. I claim them all, said the savage. <laughs> yeah, that was I mean, I, so, so I actually think that's like super important because- yeah. That's to my it, point though. Yeah. It's like recognizing that the, it's part of being human. It's part of our humanity that we are vulnerable to illness, that we are going to die, yeah. that we're not always going to be physically beautiful. I mean, that's a really like wild, you don't really yeah. hear, you know, a lot of people are claiming rights, but not those. Yeah. And I think it's a bit unsettling. Yeah. I mean, and that was Mustafa Mont who added all those things. And then, and then John says, I claim them all. Right. Yeah. And I, I actually think that that statement, I claim them all is like really important. Right. I think in some ways, like we're all put this question, like none of us chooses to be born but we all are sort of confronted with this question, is it good to be here? Is it good to, to, to uh, have the human condition as it is, right? With all the suffering that we undergo, uh, this is what I call the, the, the problem of cosmodicy. Can we justify life in the world as worth living in spite of the misery that's there, in, in spite of the hardship that we all undergo? Um, and is, is there a kind of happiness that will like justify existence that will, uh, that will, will make us say it's like, in spite of it all, it's good to be here. So in some sense, you can say it's a right to be unhappy, but then there's like this higher kind of sense of, of meaningfulness that where we say like, we can affirm that, that life, life is good in spite of it all. Right. And so I think that claim that I, I claim it all, right. Is a really important one. Like we're all sort of put to that. Do we claim it all as like something we want to participate in? Do we want to participate and affirm this world? It doesn't mean we, we think all these things are good, but uh, it's part of what what's meaningful in human life is that we you know we're subject to all the shocks and tremors of the flesh, right? To butcher a line from Shakespeare, um, that um, that this is oh, part. Yeah. Of so yeah, I mean, I think it's it's sort of like he's saying yeah, I want to really be a human being. And that yeah. means that I'm going to suffer like a human being yeah. does. This is where I think a lot of people, this is why I want to emphasize it. One, it's like super dramatic, but two, 
I think this is where a lot of people just are going to jump ship, right? Yeah. Like yeah. they were fine when you were talking about freedom and goodness and that. Okay. But like typhoid and cancer, yeah. um, I think people are like, no, actually like that part of the brave new world was really good. I don't want to age. I don't want to get ugly. I don't want to get sick. So I think it's worth thinking about this question. Like, do you really want to claim it all? Mm. Um, and so this is something that we've been talking a lot about in my medical ethics class, because we've been talking about eugenics and we read, which I think you're a fan of this book, um, Michael Sandel's The Case Against Protection. Yeah. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I teach um, that too, yeah. In this book, um, Sandel is talking about, um, he's sort of contrasting two different kinds of attitudes. On the one hand, we have this attitude of domination or mastery of nature. Um, he talks about this kind of Promethean project of always improving nature. And then he contrasts this with a disposition, which is more receptive. And he sometimes talks about being open to the unbidden or having an appreciation of the giftedness of life. Mm -hmm. And he thinks that it's wrong to try to perfect or enhance human nature. It's wrong to use medicine to perfect or enhance human nature. So he says, there's something appealing, even intoxicating about a vision of human freedom unfettered by the given. It may even be the case that the allure of that vision played a part in summoning the genomic age into being. It is often assumed that the powers of enhancement we now possess arose as an inadvertent byproduct of biomedical progress. The genetic revolution came, so to speak, to cure disease, but it stayed to tempt us with the prospect of enhancing our performance, designing our children and perfecting our nature. But that may have the story backward. It is also possible to view genetic engineering as the ultimate expression of, of our resolve to see ourselves astride the world, the masters of our nature. But that vision of freedom is flawed. It threatens to banish our appreciation of life as a gift and to leave us with nothing to affirm or behold outside our own will. Yeah. So this is like, to me, he's talking about piety. Yeah. Right. He's talking about cultivating the disposition to have an appropriate amount of reverence or awe for like life or nature something that transcends you and is given to you and that you are meant to receive in a kind of spirit of gratitude um, and that you're not meant to completely control or dominate. He doesn't put it in terms of piety, but like it's piety, right? Yeah. I think, I think piety is one aspect of that sort of accepting, appreciating, beholding stance that he's cultivating towards the, the the giftedness of the world. I mean, he says actually at the beginning of that chapter, he says, he sort of sums up like what he thinks is wrong with uh, eugenics and genetic engineering by saying the problem with eugenics and genetic engineering is that they represent the one-sided triumph of willfulness over giftedness of dominion over reverence, which reverence I think is another way of getting at piety of, Absolutely. Mo of, of molding over beholding. Right. 
Um, and he, I mean, he sort of raises this question, is this like a religious sensibility? You know, can we, can this apply to a secular person? And I think that's a really interesting question. There are people like uh, Cora Diamond who've tried to, she talks about what she calls the problem of impiety. Can a non-religious person, you know, say things are pious or impious? And another person who says something very similar and talks about what, uh, the virtue what he calls religio is uh, is David Wiggins, which again is a similar kind of posture. And he actually has this very similar remark here to Sandel, where he says that um, that if we if we think that the basically if we think that the world is our oyster, kind of to do with whatever we want, if, you know, it's sort of this sort of stance of freedom astride the world, right? Um, he says that. Ultimately, what we're left is actually with a disquiet, a disquiet. Uh, there's a disquietude of desire, or there's a disquiet of desire. Why desire anything, right? I mean, so it threatens a kind of like there's a sort of threat of nihilism here. That there's not. This goes back to my point about uh, you know, are there objective values to which we're called to be responsive in 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 a stance of piety, of receptivity, of, of gratitude for the good things of the world. Um, and Sandel saying something very similar, you know, we're left with nothing to affirm or behold outside of our will. And what I would add there is actually, if we're left with nothing to affirm or behold outside of our own will or outside of our own desires, then we have nothing to will. We have nothing to desire uh, in an important sense, right? Like, what what should we will? What should we desire if there's nothing worth desiring, right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. and, and so I think it's a kind of, um, you know, uh, in some, some ways it's a kind of like that without which if, if we don't have this, then we're going to fall into this sort of debilitating condition. Um, and you see this with like, you know, Nietzsche, when he, he talks about the death of God, I mean, his first experience is this sort of vertigo experience. Um, but then also ultimately feels this kind of liberation. And actually, uh, Ronald Dworkin, he has an essay called uh, on playing God, where he defends the, this playing God ideal of the stance of mastery towards the world. I mean, I don't think it's a very good theology about what, what God is like. Uh, but I mean, it, he, he says something similar, like basically like there's this sort of vertigo experience where like, you know, the world is our oyster, since we're quoting a lot of Shakespeare here. Um, and, you know, to do with what we will, it's sort of like, well, why, why should we care about anything? And he kind of assumes that we could fall back on these sort of like uh, commitments to quality of life and the value of autonomy. But I think, I think what Sandel is raising here without something like, like piety or reverence, the threat is nihilism. Um, and, and Wiggins makes a, a very similar point. So it's like, I mean, it's like we're, we're forced with this option, reverence or nihilism. I think, I mean, as as I think that's, that's kind of where Sandel is pushing in this argument. He doesn't, doesn't quite go all the way and say that, but if we're left with nothing outside of our will, to affirm a behold, the next conclusion to sort of follow from that, is there anything to will? Like, does anything matter, mm -hmm. right? Um, so I think that's a predicament that we're sort of in. Um, I think that's sort mm -hmm. of where John comes to, like, I don't wanna be a part of like this brave new world. Um, it's not a world I'd wanna right. be a part of because, you know, if it's all about just satisfying your desires, does that, does that satisfy, um, you know, I mean, so we're trying to control things to, to bring about um, satisfaction, but is the thing we think sad that we're trying to satisfy ourselves with, does it, does it satisfy? So I think that John has at least in a nascent form, he does have the virtue of piety. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one reason why he just can't function 
in the world state. Yeah. Because yeah. that is a place that if you actually had piety, it would work against you. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I think, I mean, one, another kind of concept to bring out in relation to piety, which I think is interesting to think about in the Brave New World context, is the concept of the sacred. So I think what, one way you might think about piety is it's a kind of proper responsiveness to the sacred. Now, oftentimes it's directed yeah. towards the sources of our life. So there's filial piety towards our parents. There's religious piety towards God, right? A lot of this connects it with a sense of the, the sacredness of, of life. I think of the stuff of piety yeah. as having to do with the sources of life. So birth, sex, and death. Yeah. Like that's like the main stuff of piety. And insofar as many people and traditions take God to be the source of that, then that is what is sacred or reverence worthy. But you might also like in kind of a John Muir sort of way, take nature to be what is sacred or reverence worthy, where sacred just means that which is an appropriate object of awe and reverence. Yeah, yeah. And gratitude. Yeah. Does that, do you agree? Yeah, I, I would agree with most of that. Um, I think it doesn't just have to be about the sources of life. I think life is an obvious object of something that we regard as sacred. Um, so I, I think God could be an object of piety. I, mean, I think we might, this is sort of an interesting question. I think we tend to refer to God as holy rather than sacred. And is there sort of a difference between the holy and the sacred? But um, I think God is a source of life. And part of what we're, what we're showing reverence for is that God is a source of this sacred good. But I think there's also a sense which we show awe and reverence to God because God is holy. Right. Um, so I, I, I think, you know, I, so I think it is connected to the sources of life. So, I mean, and also issues of death. So I think you do see it, uh, in matters of, of life and death and sexuality. I agree with your account of piety for the most part. Uh, I think, um, the sort life is, is an obvious instance of something that we regard as sacred. And so we also have piety towards the sources of life, but I think we can also have piety towards God just because God is holy. Uh, I mean, there's some interesting questions about the sacred and the holy. Sometimes I think these terms are used interchangeably though with, um, with regard to God, I think uh, holy seems to be the, the more appropriate term. People usually say God is holy, but they don't say God is, is sacred. Uh, they talk about sacred things in the world. So, I mean, there's some interesting questions about how we, how we use these concepts, but, but they're both objects of reverence. And so I, I tend to use piety as sort of equivalent to, to reverence. And so the sacred is that which is worthy of reverence, I think is, is one way to think about worthy of awe and reverence. And so, um, so I, I think, yeah, we, I think we can have feelings of piety towards life and death and sexuality as, as a source of, as a source of life. And I, I actually think, you know, on the issue that we've been talking about previously about sexuality, I, th I think a lot of people still do have a sense that there's something sacred there. I mean, there's this question we were talking about sort of making sense of, you know, the, the deeper aspects of, of erotic love and human longing. But there's also like, how do we make sense of what's worst in human sexuality, particularly, you know, violation of sexual violation? Uh, I think we tend to invoke concepts like, like there's something sacred that was violated. Um, 
And so, or like, there's a kind of like when someone kills someone or like, there's a kind of sense of, you know, they wantonly kill someone. There's a sense of desecration there. Um, I mean, it, it's not clear to me how much we, we can actually do without the concepts of the sacred. Uh, in some cases, they seem to just migrate to something else. I mean, you mentioned nature. You know, I think for some people, there's a kind of like nature spirituality. And so it seems to be part of, um, I don't know, like you could add, like, does everyone have something that they might regard as like sacred, as as like deeply precious in some way? Could we live without, could we live without a sense of the sacred? Uh, I mean, this 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 is another, to revert back to Dostoevsky, he has this, you know, in a number of his his uh, novels, he talks about how everyone wants to uh, has a need to worship something, right? Um, and they 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 may worship, you know, like an idol, but uh, they shouldn't be called. Uh, he says uh, one of his characters in the adolescence says that they shouldn't be called atheists; they should be called idolaters. That it's just that they're they're worshiping something. It just may not be uh, what a religious person would understand as as the you know the proper object, right? So I, don't, I mean, again, I, I think one of the things I, I think is really great about Huxley's book is that it raises these really interesting questions of like of philosophical anthropology. Like, can we live in this world? Is it like it, it sort of lays out a picture of this world that um, uh, just, you know, from my vantage point, seems just like totally horrifying and. I mean, I, I, I totally sympathize with John. I, I feel all those like, you know, he, he's not very happy with civilization uh, as, as they've constructed it. Um, yeah. And so it's a kind of test case. Like, is, is that a human world? Is it, is it a world that, that we can live in? Yeah, I think so. I think it's kind of, um, you know, like the pleasure machine is a thought experiment that is meant to kind of undermine hedonism. I think that Huxley you know, it's clear that he's thinking like he won't want to, but look, Huxley wrote this in 1932. And I mean, we do have versions of Soma now. Yeah. Um, we do have, uh, actually a lot of this has frankly just come to pass. Just as like, there's always that guy who's like, yeah, I'll totally get in the pleasure machine. I, yeah. think, I think it's not clear that people are totally with John. I mean, like I said, there may be certain things that John says that especially Americans will be like, yeah, like this is too much of an imposition on my freedom and I don't want to be in the collective or whatever. I mean, they'll see it as like just some yeah. weird critique of socialism. Yeah, yeah. Which I, which I think it isn't. <laughs> I think it's a critique of utilitarianism, which is very yeah. different. But I don't think that they would go so far as to accept the kind of vulnerability that John is is kind of basically accepting himself. And I think that that vulnerability is tied to an appreciation of the giftedness of life and this openness to the unbidden. Yeah. Um, and just, just to like wrap everything up in a nice little bow here at the end. I mean, we can go back to Alistair McIntyre. So Alistair McIntyre wrote an incredibly beautiful, wonderful book called Dependent Rational Animals, in which he argues for a picture of human nature, of humanity as essentially vulnerable, as like humanity is a thing that will at some point be disabled, will at some point be sick, will at some point be old, right? Um, and impotent and all these other things. That that's, that's part of what it is to be human. And it's a mistake to 
erase that. It's another kind of dehumanization. Yeah. Um, so all of these like progressive impulses. So I mean, like one way of summarizing what Huxley is up to is showing how all of these deeply progressive impulses, um, which the utilitarians had, they had really good intentions, actually. <laughs> All of these progressive impulses oddly lead you to dehumanizing ends. And so one of the things that I see Alistair McIntyre is saying is that, look, like it seems really progressive to like want to completely eradicate disability, but actually it's, it's dehumanizing. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I think that's something that um, a lot of people are just going to stop short of that. I just want to kind of bring that up at the end. So I, I'm totally with you on this stuff about dependency and, and contingency. There's sort of this, this, how do we relate to contingency? And of course, we're relating to it a lot today. I mean, the sort of contingency of living in a pandemic. And I think as much as we can, we often try to control our world to make it safe, uh, to try to keep ourselves from harm's way, right? But there's, there's an element where we can't, as you're saying, fully get out of that uh, contingency and dependency and vulnerability. Okay, so my last question, recommended plague readings for our listeners. Uh, yeah, I mean, everyone's going to say Camus the plague. Uh, yeah. I would say read the Psalms. Uh, oh, yeah, I like that. Yeah, uh, especially Psalms 23. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, thy comfort me. Surely thy goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Uh, it's a good, good one to meditate on, um, you know, in, in these times. Excellent. Uh, so Psalms, Psalms deal with a lot of suffering, a lot of contingency, a lot of vulnerability. Uh, yeah. But if you can find your way to an affirmation of something like in uh, what what uh, is what David conveys, my namesake, uh, in Psalms twenty three, I think 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 that's a good thing. So excellent. As always, it's just so great to talk to you. You have been listening to Sacred and Profane Love, a philosophy and theology podcast that is generously underwritten by the Institute of Human Ecology at the Catholic University of America and is edited by the wonderfully talented William Dethridge, a politics and theology student at CUA. You can subscribe to the podcast on SoundCloud or iTunes, and you can also follow us on social media. We're on Twitter at Pod, and we're also on Facebook at Sacred and Profane Love. If you enjoy listening to this podcast, then you definitely need to leave us a five-star review on iTunes, and please be sure to let your friends know to check us out. Our next episode will feature Professor Zena Hitz of St. John's College in Annapolis, who will be joining us to discuss her delightful new book, Lost in Thought. Until then, stay home, stay safe, and keep reading.